0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Saccholariatus, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Nicole Perlroth, a cybersecurity reporter at the New York Times. We'll be talking to Nicole about her very new book, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. Nicole, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me, John.
1: So Nicole, the media kind of goes back and forth on whether we are underhyping or overhyping the cyber threat. In this book you make a very compelling case that things are worse than we recognize and they are rapidly spiraling out of control. What did you find and how did we end up here?
0: Such a great question, you know, just to back up and talk about the hype factor. You know, in cybersecurity there's actually an acronym for hype. <laughs> it's called FUD and it stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And for decades, cybersecurity firms were really guilty of stoking FUD to sell, you know, usually useless uh, mousetraps. But, um, you know, I would argue that actually where we are now might be a good time to rethink our approach to FUD. You know, we have not had this calamitous cyber Pearl Harbor, as some officials used to call it. Um, we haven't had, you know, cyber bombs and explosions detonating all around us. And I, I always found the cyber Pearl Harbor analogy somewhat flawed because, you know, we didn't see the Japanese planes coming, whereas we've seen the cyber equivalent coming for decades. And I just think this idea of focusing on on bombs and explosions actually is sort of a distraction from where we already are, which is everything that can be intercepted already has been. And you know, if you just look at the last five years of the list of attacks, you know, we've seen Russia hack our democracy, our nuclear grid, or sorry, nuclear plants, our power grid. Um, We've seen Russian cyber criminals hold our hospitals and our schools and our cities hostage. We've seen Iran sort of emerge from this digital backwater into one of the most prolific cyber armies in the world. And China, you know, they are back to pillaging our intellectual property after a brief pause there. And it seems like the only country that sort of has backed off on attacking the United States um, that was before, is North Korea, but only because they found uh, a niche in hacking cryptocurrency exchanges to steal Bitcoin to get the funds to get around sanctions, so they can get back to their nuclear weapons. And now we're unwinding this giant Russian attack on uh, government networks that, you know, we're we're told was designed for espionage. Thank God because that same access can, and and they have in Ukraine, use that same access to shut off the power and sabotage digital systems on the other end. So where we are, I would argue, is in some ways sort of in a death by a thousand cuts situation. And because it's happening so gradually, we have sort of normalized where we are. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's pretty bad. And I think part of the reason it is so bad now um, is that we made a decision to really exploit the vulnerabilities in the digital universe. You know, the NSA, when they found holes in software, they weren't automatically patching them or turning them over to Microsoft and Apple to patch. In many cases, they were holding on to them for espionage or in the event they might have to drop a cyber weapon on an enemy system one day. And, you know, as a technology consumer, we all got very used to the access and convenience and speed of digitizing everything. Um, But we never really paused to think that through all this connectivity and all of this digital exploitation, we are now one of the most digitally connected and targeted nations in the world. And yes, we might still be the world's top cyber superpower, but it's very clear from these attacks that keep happening that our lead is slipping, and we are also one of the world's most vulnerable um, and highly targeted. So that's where we are, and and in short, that's sort of how we got here.
1: So I want to ask you a, kind of a related question, but David Sanger, your your colleague at the Times, published a book on cybersecurity about three years ago. And at risk of just grossly oversimplifying both books, I spotted two kind of signal differences. Um, The first um, is that I sense you and David diverge in viewing cyber, David viewed cybersecurity um, more as a problem of strategy, and you saw it as more of a problem baked into technology for the United States. And second was that your focus on technology, which maybe comes from your background uh, reporting in Silicon Valley before you came to the Times, seems to carry you further when it comes to pinning the blame on the United States for our current cyber insecurity. Is that a fair characterization as oversimplified uh, as I recognize it to be?
0: Well, I think our approach is probably more similar than you characterized it. I mean, David's really approaching it from a DC policy angle. And yes, I, I approach it from my own biases being based in Silicon Valley and having covered Silicon Valley for so long. But to me, it's not really the technology so much as the incentive structures. And that does include some policy decisions there. So you know, when I, when I mention incentive structures, I'm just saying, you know, at the technology companies for a long time, the, the philosophy was move fast and break things, you know, get, get stuff to market as fast as possible and you'll be rewarded for it. Um, and unfortunately, you know, at the NSA, the incentive structure was get, find these holes in these rapidly accelerating rolled out technologies so that we can exploit them. Um, and then we'll be able to spy on the enemy. And what no one was really incentivized to do was sit back and think, wait a minute, we're creating one giant attack surface here. You know, globalization means that we're all using the same technology. You know, in the Cold War, Russia attacked our typewriters and we attacked their systems and now we're all using the same equivalent of a typewriter and you know with Microsoft Windows and the iPhone and Android and Siemens industrial software and so my argument ultimately might be a policy one which is we need to change policies so that we are creating incentives that will build a stronger cyber defense and until now, we have just relied on cyber offense and active defense, uh, thinking all the while that we could outsmart our enemies. When it's become very glaring over the past few years, with these attacks that just continue to seem seem to continue to build off the last, that it is really, really time to begin the very grueling work of defense. And ultimately, that is probably a policy question too. Um, in terms of how are we going to incentivize critical infrastructure providers to lock up their systems to keep the most up-to-date software to segment the nuclear controls and the power grid from other systems do we want to do that with a stick or do we need to do it with better carrots you know those are all policy questions too
1: i think technology policy is is a fair edit uh, not a fair edit a great edit on the uh characterization I gave for, for what you're talking about in this book. Um, but let's let's go back to the beginning, because uh, as you share with your readers, when you start this project, you were basically laughed out of the room by government officials and those and kind of the, the cyber underground. So what makes the cyber arms market so opaque, and how did you manage to break through?
0: Yes, I definitely got a, you know, good luck, kiddo, uh, when I told people what I was up to And, you know, I think I put it in the book, but, um, you know, Leon Panetta told me you're going to run into a lot of walls. And Michael Hayden said, you know, good luck. And the people who were in this market said, not only will I not be talking to you, but I've told everyone else I know not to talk to you. And I was disinvited from hacking conferences. And, you know, at one point my laptop was moved when I was at this hacking convention in Buenos Aires looking into these issues and I got an alert from our security team that someone was offering good money to hack my laptop and my phone on the dark web so it was it was intimidating you know and there were definitely moments where I paused and didn't touch the book for months on end and I I actually kept this Maya Angelo quote on my whiteboard and I can't quote it perfectly but it's something like there's no greater agony than the untold story inside us all and i would just look at it and and get back to work on the book and i would instantly feel better you know there's just this anxiety when you're not working on something that goes away the minute you're you're in the flow writing and reporting and so tackling this particular subject matter was difficult and and it was difficult because um, a lot of the, the offensive operations and programs at the NSA and other intelligence agencies are classified, you know, for good reason. But they are reaching out to this market for a lot of their tools and tradecraft. And um, when I say tools and tradecraft, I mean, they're paying, uh, you know, they're paying hackers in some cases to turn over vulnerabilities in software and hardware that we call zero days. Um, Because no one knows about them and uh, software and hardware manufacturers have not had a chance to fix them. And so just as a sort of logical extension of what they are, which is secret vulnerabilities in code, um, they immediately lose their worth once they become known and patched. So everyone in this market is very much incentivized to shut up, turn over these vulnerabilities to defense contractors and government agencies and never tell a soul Because if they do and it gets patched, then suddenly these million-dollar zero days turn to mud overnight. So the way I went about this was I went to what I knew was already public and sort of started um, peeling the onion back from there. And what was already public was I knew that there had been murmurs of a gray market for zero days for um, cyber arms and, and vulnerabilities. Um, Andy Greenberg at Wired did a fantastic piece on one of the major zero-day brokers out there at the time, the Gruck, uh, for Forbes magazine. And that story, I, I was told later, you know, resulted in uh, the police showing up at the Gruck's house where he lives in Thailand. His business plummeted by half. Um, no one, no government agency wanted to do business with someone who was going to talk to a journalist. But what Andy did was really kind of cracked open um, the fact that there was this trade out there that no one wanted to talk about in zero days and vulnerabilities. So what I did was I went to a security company called iDefense that first really started paying hackers for bugs. Now, they weren't selling these to governments, but It was the first time a security company said, you know what, there's real value in what hackers do, finding these vulnerabilities. And if we can learn about them first and tell our customers at government agencies and banks, then we'll have an opportunity to patch them first. And that will be valuable intelligence. And customers will pay us for that intelligence. And that's a worthwhile product. And so I just went back to that firm and and to their CEO, John Waters, um, who's quite a colorful character. And I said, you know, did you know that there was this separate market out there, government market out there for these same holes and vulnerabilities? And he said, you know what? You know, we we knew nothing when we started offering to pay hackers for their bugs. But at some point, I did start getting calls from these boutique contractors around the Beltway who basically said, hey, that same bug you're paying hackers 100 bucks for will pay you $150,000 for that same bug if you don't tell your clients and you don't tell the manufacturer and we'll keep those for espionage. And that was a big revelation for him, and ultimately he decided, you know, even though that's one of the greatest profit margin businesses you can think of, <laughs> um, it just he'd be working against customers, and he decided not to do it. But I was able to track down, um, with partly with his help, one of the people who called him back in the day, and that person, I had to change their names uh, because, like the Grek, they didn't want to, you know, lose their reputation in business to talk to me, but um, I call him Jimmy Sabian in the book and he was willing to sit down with me and tell me, you know, really how this market got started and how at the same time hackers were just searching for vulnerabilities in code and calling up Microsoft and trying to get Microsoft to fix it. And Microsoft was sort of bopping them over the head and threatening them with lawsuits. Uh, Government agencies and these boutique contractors saw real intelligence value in what they were doing. And we're willing to pay them six figures to turn over those holes and never tell a soul. And then we were stockpiling them and using them for espionage and counterterrorism. and and also, in the event we might want to, you know, use these holes to drop a cyber weapon one day. So that's how I approached it. And um, what happened over the course of my reporting this book, was the worst possible thing that could happen, which is that the NSA's own stockpile of vulnerabilities was hacked and dribbled out online by someone we don't even know who they are yet, but who called themselves the shadow brokers. So I'll stop there and let you ask more questions, but happy to go on.
1: Well, I did want to ask one more question about the market itself and the people who trade in it, because it is an opaque market, but it is shaped by kind of unique factors. And as you explain in the book, there aren't explicit export regulations on some of the things these characters are doing. So while there may be this incentive to uh, remain in the shadows, often what they are doing is not explicitly illegal. And many of them are motivated by their frustrations with kind of shoddy software development, for example, by private sector companies. So can you talk a little bit about just kind of what makes this... Uh, market not just opaque but unique in its opaqueness when compared to other black underground markets.
0: Yeah, so I mean this this is a market where governments aren't regulators, they're clients. And so in some ways, you could argue they have the least incentive to actually create rules and laws around this market. And then it also helps that, you know, this market is dealing with invisible, vulnerable code uh, that most of us, you know, out in the world don't read or understand. And so we don't really understand the stakes for what's happening. And when there are moral hazards uh, in this market, you know, when a hacker sells a gaping hole in Windows to a contractor who weaponizes it and turns it over to an intelligence agency or cyber command, um, you know, it's, it creates this moral hazard that, well, Windows is something we all use now, and not just for our communications, but for, uh, you know, critical infrastructure. We use it in hospitals, we use it in transportation, we use it in all sorts of things that we wouldn't want to see get hacked. And, and instead of dealing with that moral hazard or even setting laws around what we can and cannot sell, The way the U.S. government has really dealt with this issue is to classify a lot of these programs and deals. Um, You know, they do have a process. It used to be called NOBUS, which stands for nobody but us at the NSA, where they would stop and ask themselves, "Okay, we found this zero day in iOS or Windows software. You know, how difficult is it to exploit? How widely used is the software? Should we turn this over to Microsoft or Apple? Well, if we think it's you know it's something it would be difficult for other countries to find, we'll keep it. Um, otherwise, we might turn it over. But there was really no oversight there, and even when that process became formalized uh, under the Bush administration, and and even more so under Obama as the Vulnerability Equities Process, which was basically just a bunch of representatives from government agencies sitting around a table debating the merits of whether to keep or turn over a zero day, we, we still had no idea which government representatives were involved. You know, when they say they patch 90% of the bugs they find, what about those 10%? Do they affect a million systems or 10 systems? And are, do they only impact systems in Iran or China? Or do they impact systems here? You know, we really have no real sense for what that process is like. Um, And then there's the, you know, people in the market argument, which is how do you regulate code? You know, code is, is, is free speech. You know, we write code. We should be able to share it. And they argue that there is a defensive element here as well, which is true, which is, you know, if we find a way to hack into these systems that's dual use technology that could be used by a government or cyber criminals to hack into a system. It could also be used by governments and businesses to mitigate these holes. And and there's real defensive value there too. The problem is because we didn't want to regulate this, because it had such inherent uh, intelligence value and Uh, value to our battlefield preparations, we've essentially let this thing get way, way, way out of control.
1: The NSA does not come across favorably in the book. And one thing that stood out to me is the dissonance within the NSA between their fears of the world around them, quote, going dark due to commercial encryption, um, and the increasing vulnerability of the internet due to the digital revolution. Where do you think that insecurity comes from? And did it surprise you?
0: It didn't surprise me because of, uh, by the time I got around to doing this book, I had just covered a hack of just about every kind of technology you could think of. (laughs) So nothing surprised me anymore. Um, but what did surprise me was the fact that it was all offense all the time. It appeared at the NSA and instead of really pausing to, as my two-year-old says, take a moment, um, they just continued with offense, continued classifying their offensive programs, uh, without expending the same calories towards defense and clearly, you know, as we were just accelerating the rate at which we were hooking up every single device or in piece of infrastructure to the internet, the stakes of what they were doing just kept getting higher and higher and higher. And there were just these callous, glaring mistakes that were made at the NSA, you know, the most glaring being that they lost their own Stockpile of vulnerabilities, which were able to get picked up by North Korea and then Russia, and the NotPetya attack that cost American companies ten, you know, ten billion dollars in total damages. Um, damages that those companies have had a really hard time recouping from their insurance providers, who say that, oh no, we're not going to pay this back because this was technically an act of war that happened, and we don't cover that. <laughs> so. It's very clear that in all this sort of digital exploitation we were doing and by classifying a lot of these programs, we were sort of avoiding having these very necessary discussions around, all right, if we're going to keep doing this, if we're not going to stop exploiting every vulnerability everywhere, shouldn't we at least pause and ask ourselves whether we want to make sure that our own technology is safe, that our own infrastructure is safe? that we are using hand-marked paper ballots, that we are encrypting and segmenting our patient data at hospitals? You know, should we should we think twice before we're adding the software to airplanes and fighter jets? And, and we just were not doing that. We were just not pausing to ask ourselves these questions in any kind of meaningful way or transparent way.
1: I, I want to move to the shadow brokers in a second, but before we go there, I want to I guess, push you on the the NSA piece and their their cardinal sin of focusing too heavily on the offense. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm curious, do you think that the legal constraints on the NSA operating on U.S. systems kind of pushed them towards this bias towards the offense? Is that a perhaps forgiving, if not, uh, you know, exculpatory explanation for how they ended up going down this this road?
0: I think that's actually a really fresh idea. And I, I had not heard it articulated that way, but I but I think it's a good one, which is if your focus is hacking foreign networks and you're prohibited from even searching your own horizon and the vulnerabilities inherent here, then obviously you're going to have some bias towards exploiting everything you can. Um, without thinking about how that might blow back on us systems, you know, that's a really provocative idea and probably something that's worth its own podcast. But, um, you know, I think in general, the NSA's position was, we want to be the leader in digital offense and hopefully by practicing active defense, we can both, um, basically you know roll out the digital version of mutually assured destruction you know if russia's going to hack our grid well we're going to hack them too so that they know if they hack us we'll just turn around and turn off their lights as well but also the idea was let's get an early warning system on what the adversary has planned before it comes back and hits the united states and in theory that sounds really good but in practice that just fell apart because we weren't catching attacks before they were hitting the United States. Maybe we were and maybe that was classified too and we won't really know how big the payoffs were. but what the latest solar winds attack makes very clear is that we missed a big one and not only did we miss a big one, but it's it's all over our government IT infrastructure. it's all over the software supply chain. I mean, what the Biden administration is walking into is a government IT structure that it fundamentally can't trust. And even though we should be grateful, we're told that this operation was aimed at espionage, you know, it is only one click away from sabotage. (laughs) And the fact that the United States government and no one more so than the NSA didn't catch this is, is pretty stunning. I mean, the fact that we only learned about this attack because FireEye, a private company, detected the attack on its own systems and tipped off everyone else, tells you that you know, offense alone is not going to keep us safe, and we really need to use this moment to recalibrate and ask ourselves whether it is in time to to really begin the grueling work of defense.
1: Well, uh, first of all, on the um, legal point, that insight came from your book, so the credit goes okay. to you, <laughs> not not me. Um, but second, uh, I know you've you've talked a little bit about the the shadow broker brokers and some of your answers, but. It strikes me that they may be kind of the the greatest counterintelligence failure that most mm-hmm. Americans have never heard of. I love um, that. You know, I, I'm curious if you agree with them and if you can kind of offer our listeners, you know, a little bit more background into not just who they are, but some of the different theories um, that have emerged about how they did what they did, what their goals were, et cetera.
0: Well, so much of it is still a mystery, including who they are. You know, what we know is that in 2016, someone who went by the name Shadow Brokers on Twitter basically started dribbling out uh, references that they had hacked the Equation Group, which was the name Kaspersky, the Russian firm, gave to the NSA. And they started dribbling out samples that made clear that they had access to the NSA's code. Um, and then over a period of ma- many months, they dribbled out the NSA's tools. And at the end, they sort of saved the best for last, which was um, they dropped some vulnerabilities that the and exploits that the, the micro sorry that the NSA had been hoarding in Microsoft code, which ended up getting picked up first by North Korea in this ransomware attack that could have been terrible had they not made some mistakes with their code, and then a month later by Russia that used the attack on Ukraine. Um, and unfortunately there was collateral damage in every company or business that did, had even a single employee in Ukraine, um, saw themselves get hit. So suddenly, you know, Pfizer was hit, Merck saw its vaccine supplies decimated from that attack. Doctors can access patient records on and on and on. Now, in terms of who they are, we still don't know. And at first, the automatic suspect was the usual suspect, which was Russia. You know, it, the timing of it worked out, I guess, if you wanted to see where we were at that time, it was late 2016. You know, Russia had been trying to hack the election and, and its troll networks were trying to sow division and and, uh, you know, there were threats of retaliation, but. Some people surmise that by hacking the NSA's own tools, this might be Russia saying, hey, even if you want to respond to what we've done, we know how you're going to do it. We have your tools and we can do it right back to you. Um, but then it just, if it was Russia, they it, they clearly had some kind of insider access because the shadow brokers started publishing blogs where they started dropping names and classified code names that only would have been known to people, not just at the NSA, but in a very elite group of NSA hackers known as then known as TAO, the Tailored Access Operations Unit. And once they started dropping those hints and clues, Um, it became very clear that perhaps this was some kind of insider. And the focus really turned to, at first, an NSA employee or contractor named Hal Martin, who was taking reams of NSA-classified top-secret documents home with him. Um, And it it appeared that maybe the the, uh, NSA had found its guy. But in retrospect, I think it came out that he was more of a hoarder um and was not the NSA mole. And we that became very clear when he was in custody, and, and the shadow brokers was were still dumping um, a lot of the NSA's best tools online. So we still haven't seen kind of a clear follow through on the Hal Martin angle, but it, it appears he had nothing to do with this. Um, there was another thread that we pulled on at the New York Times where there was an NSA, employee who had gone home and done some of his work on his home computer where he used Kaspersky antivirus software. And uh, what, what I discovered was that uh, Israel, it turned out, had hacked Kaspersky and in the process of hacking Kaspersky saw that Kaspersky was pulling top secret documents Um, from this computer, from this guy who worked at the NSA, back uh, into its servers. And so we wrote about that. Now, Kaspersky later claimed that they weren't looking for top secret documents. They just were were looking for a string of malware that happened to contain the word secret. And so that's sort of where that trail ended. But we really still don't know. We don't know if this was an insider. We don't know if this was Russia. We don't know if it was another nation state. And now it's been, you know, almost five years since that hack and we still don't know. Um, And that is that makes it a serious, serious counterintelligence counterintelligence fail on the part of the U.S. government. And if they do know who did it, they they haven't told the rest the rest of us.
1: So a quick follow-up. There was there an appropriate level concern about level of concern about that incident in Congress behind closed doors that you're aware of, or if not, why not? Does that maybe get into some of the kind of dismissive hand waving that the government ultimately did about the significance of those tools uh, getting loose and following into the ha- falling into the hands of a Russia and a North Korea?
0: Well, I think that, unfortunately, I just don't think Congress is technical enough to have understood that what the shadow brokers took and leaked, in my opinion, was way more damaging than the Snowden documents. You know, the Snowden documents harmed our diplomatic relations. They harm morale but what he leaked what he got access to was essentially powerpoint slides and some internal wiki documents and maybe the biggest damage of all um, was you know to the relationship that the NSA and US government had with silicon valley uh, but what the shadow brokers stole and leaked was the actual code you know our most coveted hacking tools when i ran what was out there by former NSA TAO hackers, they called it the keys to the kingdom. I mean, they were using those tools in some of the best counterintelligence operations that they were doing. Um, and the minute that the shadow brokers basically dropped those online and into our enemy laps, we had to go back and close up every operation that relied on those tools. We had to find new tools um, it was, you know, from everything I've heard, just a, an epic disaster internally. But I think just because of the technical nature of the shadow brokers leaks, I don't think that the impact really was well absorbed by Congress, by the American public. And that was one of the reasons I decided to continue on with this book. Was I really wanted people to understand what was at stake here, and the shadow brokers? You know the attacks that followed, what what North Korea and Russia then pulled off, and then some of the sort of longer tail um, of those leaks when we start seeing cyber criminals use Eternal Blue to um, take over cities and and schools and and major American companies. I wanted people to understand that those attacks were facilitated in part by a decision at the NSA to keep us more vulnerable rather than lock these systems up.
1: I want to change gears here a little bit and talk about the role of the private sector and how it has evolved over time. And I think um, in an illustrative example, although we don't necessarily have to focus here, is Microsoft because when you begin this story uh, in the at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, Microsoft develops this reputation for really sop- sloppy software practices. And uh, there are a couple blips along the way, um, but within two decades, you have Brad Smith leading calls for a digital G- Geneva convention. And interestingly enough that's a role he's kind of reprising today uh, with the solar winds hack with his publishing of this blog about a moment of reckoning mm-hmm. um, you know again actually even though it's just looking more and more like Microsoft may have gotten owned in that in that compromise mm-hmm. as well um, but I'm curious you know what you think about where the private sector is today is it beginning to become a force for good in this story or are the incentives still too great? Uh, for these companies to kind of slap on additional features and churn out insecure software?
0: So I think that they ultimately are these good guys who took a long path to becoming good guys, (laughs) but no one more so than Microsoft. And I don't want to make them sound like a saint because they're a, a company and they are not perfect when it comes to security, but they are one of the best. And the story of how they became one of the best is an interesting story, uh, particularly as it relates to the cyber arms industry. You know, as I go through the book, they start off being enemy number one of the information security community in part because they were so late to the internet market. They were getting so dominated by Netscape and some of the early movers on the web that they were racing so quickly to catch up that they were rolling out these web servers and the software that was just riddled with holes and problems. And when hackers, and when I say hackers, you know, most people think of cyber criminals, but when I use hackers, I mean good guys, like guys who, um, you know, intellectually probe this software for fun. And when they find problems really do their best to try and find them. So when those hackers were, bringing Microsoft or tried to bring Microsoft's attention to these holes in its software and what could be done uh, with those holes. You know, They could get into NASA. They could get into anyone that used Microsoft software. Microsoft wasn't saying, oh my goodness, thank you so much. We'll pay you for this or just thank you for the free labor. They were saying, if you keep poking around our products, we'll threaten you with a lawsuit. And What really changed inside Microsoft was the series of attacks out there that used Microsoft software and these giant uh, computer worms like NIMDA. There was another one called the I Love You virus. And these attacks just made clear just how shoddy Microsoft security was. And increasingly, they started impacting customers like Ford Motor Company and the White House and Microsoft and Bill Gates started getting calls from government officials saying, listen, this is a this is becoming a real national security threat. And if you don't do something about this, we will find a way to take our business elsewhere. And Bill Gates, you know, to his eternal credit, you know, I don't know if it was the government calls that did it or you had a come to Jesus moment, but he did send out this very famous memo around 2002, I believe, where he said, okay, we get it. Uh, We realize that security is critical, that it will become even more critical as the internet seeps into our daily lives. And we promise to reprioritize everything around security. And at the time, everyone sort of wrote it off as a publicity stunt or a joke. But it was serious. They really, they brought in security engineers at the beginning of the coding process, not after the product had already been rolled out. Um, You know, we call that security by design. They even set up a very complicated protocol for how hackers could reach out to them. They were noting each hacker's psychological quirks, like which people were really good at pointing out serious flaws and which were just sort of pulling their chain and who did they have to call back first. And um, they started implementing these fixes. They put in process a a day called Patch Tuesday, they call it, where they roll out all their fixes for bugs at once. And they really made security a priority. And, you know, the way that you can see how just how tangible what they were doing was, was A hacker told me in the 90s, you could find a really serious Microsoft zero day and exploit it in an afternoon. But after Bill Gates's memo, after Microsoft really rearranged itself around security, it it, it now takes months, maybe a year before you can get a really, really good uh, Microsoft Windows exploit. So, um, you know, they deserve praise for that. I think they had to go through a lot of pain to get there. Um, but t- these days they really are one of the leaders in security. Now with the solar winds hack, we're learning, like you said, that they were breached to, you know, that, that Russia really used their soft underbelly in this case, which was their resellers to attack some of their clients. And, you know, it's, I'm sure Microsoft is, is dealing with an internal reckoning of how to solve the reseller issue. Um, And it's vendor issue. And, you know, but for the most part, they've been pretty forthcoming about the fact that they were hit in this. Um, And like you said, Brad Smith has almost become a thought leader on this issue of setting up a Geneva Convention for cyber, setting international norms around what governments can and can't do in the name of cyber warfare. And just compared to other companies, they're so far ahead you know, Apple, Google, Amazon all have almost like mini intelligence agencies now inside their corporate headquarters dealing with security. Um, the problem is, you know, beneath those companies, you have the solar winds of the world that we're only now learning after the fact, you know, the fact that despite the fact its software was inside some of the most Um, sensitive systems in American IT. You know, they were in more than 400 of the 500, Fortune 500, and they were in all of these government agencies in our nuclear labs. They were in the grid. Uh, It turns out they had really crappy security. You know, they were repeatedly warned by people inside the company that they needed to make security a priority. And if they didn't, it would be a disaster. And they ignored that. They moved a lot of their building of code overseas to places like Belarus um, they you know they they made cost cutting the priority they didn't make security the priori- priority and now they're paying for it um, and that's pretty embarrassing for a company that was trying to market itself as a security company in some ways but really SolarWinds is just you know the tip of the iceberg i mean what it was doing in terms of security is much more common than what Microsoft and Google and others have done over the past 10 years to take security seriously. And I think right now, you know, the, the Solar Winds attack is so pervasive. It's so bad. It could have been worse. Um, but right now is, if I hope any, if I have any hopes that there is a silver lining, I think it is that this is the first time that I've heard grid operators are just ripping out everything mm-hmm. Trying to understand exactly what it is that touches their network, who made it, where it's made, how it's secured, how seriously they take their security um, and are really reevaluating what software they will use and looking at it as if everything it uses is a potential Russian backdoor. So, you know, right now is that moment where we're sort of finally doing this inventory around what it what it what is touching our most vulnerable systems and and what shouldn't be touching them?
1: Well, that's a nice segue because something that jumped out in your reporting and in your book um, are these hidden moments of panic and uncertainty when officials first learn about breaches or, or cyber attacks. So just to name a few, there's the Bowman Dam incident, Mm -hmm. the Russian intrusion into the nuclear sites, the electric grid, the ransomware attacks building up towards the election. And one that really stood out in the book that I hadn't heard of was the post-Suleimani briefing that that Chris Krebs gave to all the critical infrastructure operators in the United States. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, how big is the gap between the government's sense of alarm about cyber attacks, uh, maybe even a cyber 9-11 event as, as you know, poor as that um, analogy is versus the public's kind of increasing resignation to, you know, the u- ubiquity of digital vulnerability and digital compromises.
0: There's just this huge gap in awareness, but, you know, what Craig, Chris Krebs has actually said was when he was deputizing his team at CISA, the cybersecurity agency at the Department of Homeland Security, to go around to these rural counties and try and get them to understand the threat, the cyber threats that that we faced um, and the need for paper backups and auditing procedures the idea of a Russian attack or a Chinese attack or Iranian just seemed so foreign to the people that they were speaking to out in these rural counties. So they pivoted in their messaging and they started telling them, well, um, you know, your system could be held with ransomware, you know, are you aware of ransomware? And these people would say, oh yeah, you know, the, the hospital down the street or my friend's company just got held up with ransomware. I can get my head around that. Yeah, we should have paper backups and we should have auditing procedures. So I liked that story <laughs> because it means that even though ransomware has become this epic nightmare for the United States and, you know, sadly our hospitals in the middle of a global pandemic when we're already short staffed and under siege, um at least it is kind of giving people a sense of what a really catastrophic attack could look like and also waking people up to the fact that we conduct so much of our digital um our lives digitally and the repercussions for for a cyber attack of that kind. So so I do think the awareness is increasing, but it is nowhere near where it needs to be and definitely I worry that it will take, you know, a really calamitous cyber attack, not solar winds, but something where you're talking about an explosion at a chemical factory or on a pipeline somewhere, for people to really wake up and see sort of the real world deadly implications of some of these attacks. And, you know, that used to be FUD. That used to be too scary. Um, that used to be too far off in the distance or too complex an idea for people to wrap their heads around. But in the last couple of years, we, we caught an attack. Where Russia got into a petrochemical factory uh, in Saudi Arabia and got as far as dismantling the safety locks at the plant, you know, the last thing uh, that shut that that keeps anything from exploding. And why were they doing that? It doesn't look like they actually intended to cause an explosion, but clearly they were using it as some kind of testing ground. You know, we've seen Russia shut off the lights in Ukraine. We've seen them detonate not Petya and take out hospitals and, and doctors' access to patient records and cause a billion dollars between Merck and FedEx and decimate vaccine supplies. So we're getting closer and closer to a really, really big one. And we're not there with wind. But like I said, you're only one click away from espionage to sabotage. And so I hope that, you know, this happening right now with this new administration coming in and saying they're going to make cybersecurity a priority, that this can be the, the blaring red light giant wake up call that we need after so many other wake up calls before this.
1: Changing gears here a little bit, I have read some arguments that the digital revolution has killed old fashioned spying. It's just simply mm-hmm. too easy to track uh, individuals who may want to keep a low profile. Mm-hmm. But reading this book, and now I'm kind of going back to the first two thirds of the book about the cyber arms underground. Um, Reading about that world and le- and learning about how it works, I began to think that this is actually a place that's really ripe for traditional human mm-hmm. intelligence,
0: mm-hmm. whether it
1: be in recruiting hackers or you know flipping brokers or planting insiders at a company. Is that something that has come across in your reporting?
0: Yes, um, one of my favorite chapters that I did was on um, Jim Gosler, who is kind of widely but secretly considered the godfather of American cyber war and he was first at Sandia National Labs where he was looking at vulnerabilities in our nuclear arsenal and the components that make their way into our nuclear weapons and then his expertise became very valuable at the NSA as they were realizing the potential for espionage from digital exploitation. But what I thought was the most interesting was his time at the CIA And uh, I went back and spoke with and read the accounts of many people who trained under him at the CIA. And what he taught them was, you know, I realized that digital exploitation sounds scary and it sounds like it's going to replace your job, but this is not something that's going to replace you. This is just something that will enable you to do your jobs better. And if, you know, you could be a janitor, you could be a construction worker, And you can just go into an embassy somewhere or consulate or a company or a software maker and plug something into a USB and that's all we need you to do. And the rest, the rest we can do from here. And I even spoke to some former CIA operatives who said, yeah, you you wouldn't believe what you can get away with when you just put on a hard hat. (laughs) But what struck me was, you know, there are a lot of systems out there of interest that are air-gapped and that they are disconnected from the internet. And we need to rely on people to go get us into those systems. So, you know, the most famous example would be Stuxnet when the US and Israel detonated a computer worm at Natan's nuclear facility in Iran to take out its centrifuges that system was air-gapped. And all we know is that the worm came in on a USB stick. We don't know if it was a CIA operative, a janitor, a German ally, a Dutch ally. We have no idea how it got in there, but we know it was a person that brought it in. And, you know, that just illustrates that, you know, for all the technical prowess on earth, we still, in some cases, have to rely on people to pull off these operations.
1: I want to give you a Kind of impossible to answer counterfactual um, before we wrap up, which is if the U.S. had shown more restraint, had been less obsessed with going on the offense and exploiting these software vulnerabilities, how how different would the world look today?
0: Okay, that's a really hard one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we just wouldn't be seeing the attacks we're seeing right now. We would, you know, if we had just been honest and transparent about just how vulnerable these systems were then I don't think we ever would have moved to ballot marking machines for for our elections. I don't think we would have ever moved to pacemakers that can get a remote software update. Uh, I don't know whether we would have Tesla cars out there with 100 million lines of code that no outsider had vetted, you know. It just I think we might have paused and and thought about okay, if the, if these systems are this vulnerable, maybe we shouldn't be hooking everything up and we shouldn't be hooking it up at a rate of 127 new devices per second. But instead, we've sort of taken for granted this idea that everything that can will be virtualized. You know, we're moving to AI, we're adding... Virtualization to our transportation, you know, we just we never look back. We're just going, 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 and unfortunately, we're also creating the world's largest attack surface. And so, I think if we had known earlier, um, or just been more open, or done a better job informing the American public about the the trade off from Silicon Valley's promise of this frictionless society, what the security trade off from that promise would be i think there would be a lot of systems that we collectively decided we would never put online and you know i don't know i don't know if that would have been enough to sort of slow the the um slow globalization essentially but i think we would have made smarter decisions um i also think that we probably much earlier would have come up with real carrots and sticks for companies to treat secure coding seriously um, made it inex- unacceptable for people to just roll out code that's riddled with bugs that could be probed by an adversary to take out our grid. You know, we 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 are not anywhere near ever implementing anything like that. And um, fortunately, you know, the market has come around and they are taking security more seriously. And uh, but you know, at the same time, you, you we have these major attacks. And we pause for a moment and we say, oh, wow, that was really bad or that was a close call or I guess it could have been a lot worse. We should really take security more seriously. And then we sort of go on with our daily lives. And the next month, we're just back to hooking everything up and, um, you know, making sure that convenience, not security, is the priority. So I do hope this is our moment. (laughs) I do hope with the new administration, we can really make cybersecurity a priority I do hope we can figure out how to make it a priority in the market and um, you know, pause the rollout of just the internet of things on everything.
1: I want to end on a lighter note. So mm-hmm. about a month ago, you reported on a fascinating story about a digital book thief of sorts. Mm-hmm. And since this is the New Books Network... Um, I wanted you to send home our listeners with a little bit of mystery and a little bit of warning um, for all of our potential authors and bibliophiles who might be listening today. So, can you can you tell our listeners about what you reported on then?
0: Okay, this was my favorite story, and I'll tell you just the backstory is kind of funny because I was so just immersed in the Solar Winds hack, and I kept getting calls from Liz Harris, who is our wonderful uh, wonderful reporter in New York, and she kept calling and saying, "I think that there's this book." this book thing happening. I think people are getting their manuscripts stolen. And I was like, Liz, like things get stolen all the time. This sounds like spearfishing. Everyone's getting spearfished all the time. Like I'm just trying to write about the election and this Russia hack. And she's like, okay, but I I think this is really bad. (laughs) Fortunately, she didn't give up. And it turned out that yes, someone out there, we don't know who, Has been viciously spearfishing authors, their agents, their publishers, their secretaries, their family members, sending along these emails saying, Hey, can I get the latest draft of your manuscript or some variation thereof? And, uh, you know, are getting these manuscripts and we have no idea where they're going. So, where I helped Liz was just trying to find out whether they were popping up on the dark web. Um, or, you know, they were like being posted online and someone was trying to steal people's credit card numbers, but they weren't. And it so it just added to this mystery of what is happening in the publishing world. Who is this person who's clearly doing a lot of homework to try and get early access to these manuscripts? And one of the sort of leading suspects, I think, is the scouting industry, which essentially is the industry that connects authors and agents and publishers to those who want to acquire their books or the rights to their books for film or television. I think that's the leading suspect here, although we're not sure. Um, But I do get to tell you that I do think there are some major developments that will happen (laughs) over the next couple of weeks. So hopefully I'll be able to publish those then.
1: Fantastic. I can't wait. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the pod
0: thank you so much. These questions were incredible. Have a great one. You too.